0: You have the chief of police saying that it's natural to suspect black people and natural to suspect immigrants. They need to train themselves to take off those glasses, those racist glasses.
1: Welcome to the 972 Podcast. I'm Ido Conrad.
2: And I'm Henriette Shakar. Every week we'll be interviewing activists, politicians, and journalists to discuss the issues and stories that other media outlets tend to ignore.
1: Elections are approaching and it's been a wild week. The Israeli Supreme Court forbade Mikhail Benari, a far right Kahanist politician, from running in the upcoming elections. His party, Otzma Yudit, or Jewish Power in English, is still allowed to run.
2: Wait, are they the ones who want to violently expel Palestinians?
1: Yep, that's them. But we'll have more on that a little later in the episode.
2: You know, it feels like a lot of the Israeli media attention is focusing on the mudslinging that's going on between various candidates in this election. And we're not really talking about some of the bigger issues.
1: Exactly. Issues like the occupation, the siege on Gaza, and growing economic gaps in Israel... They're not really on the public agenda this time. One of the communities that is almost entirely overlooked by both politicians and the media is the Ethiopian-Israeli community, which is quite difficult to believe, considering that only two months ago, tens of thousands of them marched in the streets of Tel Aviv to protest police brutality and racism.
2: Tell me about the specific incident that led to that moment.
1: Well, it all began in January, when Yehuda Biadga, a 24-year-old Ethiopian-Israeli, left his home distraught. He began wandering the streets of his neighborhood in Batyam, a city just south of Tel Aviv, with a knife. His family members were worried because Biadga suffered from severe PTSD following his release from the army. So they immediately called the police.
2: And what happened when police arrived at the scene?
1: Well, first of all, it took the police nearly an hour to even reach the neighborhood. Eventually, one of the officers says he saw Biadga approaching him with a knife in hand and ordered him to stop. But Biadga seems to have ignored the warnings. The officer then fired two shots at his upper body, killing him.
2: How did the Ethiopian community react to this killing?
1: The killing reopened a wound that had never really healed. And many Ethiopians accused the officer of shooting to kill. Specifically because Biadga was black.
2: And then what happened?
1: Israeli Ethiopians held a mass protest across Tel Aviv. They blocked traffic on one of Israel's busiest highways and then held a vigil at Rabin Square.
2: Ido, many of these protesters, they're younger, they're second-generation Israelis. Tell me more about this community.
1: There are more than 145,000 Ethiopian Jews living in Israel. And like you said, most of them are children of Ethiopians who immigrated here in the late 80s or 90s, and over half of them live in poverty. I spoke with Mazal Bisawer, a prominent Israeli-Ethiopian activist, about why politicians are silent on police brutality and racism in the run-up to the elections, and what it's like to be black and Jewish in Israel. Mazal Bissauer, thank you so much for speaking to us today. We are less than two months after the fatal police shooting of Yuda Biadga. What, if anything, has changed since then?
0: Um, I think that it's it's a pretty huge question. And also, I'm not sure that barely a month, a couple of months later, we can look back and say what had changed. I think that it may be too soon. But I think that the event itself changed something. Um, I think that a lot of people were very uh hurt and many of us just looked back on 2015 the first time when we uh, went out to the streets and we kept thinking about the other names and we were thinking maybe we could have prevented it i could hear people saying that You know, we didn't work hard enough. We didn't didn't change enough. When people went out this time, I think that they wanted to make sure that this thing will never happen again. The truth is that there is not enough sense of trust within the community.
1: When you talk about trust, what do you mean?
0: When I talk about trust, I talk about trust of the community in the judicial system, and the police, we don't trust the government. A great example for that is the fact that one of the outcomes of the Falmor report was that the Justice Department and the police decided to expunge records of young Ethiopians that uh, were wrongly accused. Last time I checked, barely 10 people went over to fulfill their right to expunge their record. And to me, this is a very sad and great indication to the fact that people don't trust the system.
1: It seems that most of the attention surrounding Ethiopian-Israeli struggles in the past couple of years have focused on issues like police discrimination and brutality. But the struggle for integration into Israeli society is much broader than that. What are the other parts of that struggle that need to be discussed?
0: The police brutality is only one symptom. It might be the murder of Yuda Biadga or other police brutality cases are the trigger, but they are definitely not the cause. It's a system of well-defined, systematic discrimination that we suffer from here in Israel for over 30 years. Here in Israel, people do not use the word racism towards blacks usually people talk about racism towards palestinians and arabs and they also talk about you know ashkenazim but no one is talking about racism towards black people racism towards skin color people don't believe and don't understand systematic discrimination it's hard for them to believe or to comprehend how the system works.
1: Why do you think that the majority of Israelis have such a hard time coming to terms with this concept of racism? Why is it so hard for them to see?
0: I think that, you know, I'm thinking about the Jewish state narrative. The Israeli people want to have this romantic idealization of their narrative. You know, we live in a Jewish state and we have a Jewish people coming from all over the world. Therefore, there cannot be any racism. And I think that we live in a state where we have all kind of issues, security issues, and we have economic issues. And we live in a state where politicians and the government that we have always trying to refocus uh, the discussion towards you know the common enemy that we have and it allows people to deflect and to concern themselves with other things to not feel responsible or to not be aware that they might be a part of a majority that is oppressing people and you add to that the fact That, as someone once told me, the biggest privilege that a person with privileges have is the fact that his privileges are transparent to him. People here don't want me to rattle the earth they don't want me to mess around with their sense of entitlement they don't want me to mess around with the way they justify uh how they live and the fact that we live here okay they don't want to hear it everything here is fine everything here is well even though it is totally not i mean not only racism you have occupation you have economic issues We're a mess, you know, but people here live in denial and people will maybe justify it because, you know, yeah, well, you know, the Mizrahi also suffer from this. And my parents, when they got here, they also suffer. We all had to suffer for the sake of the Jewish state. So in what? Okay, nothing is justifying the fact that I I am an Israeli citizen. I was born here, I was raised here, and I was oppressed here. I still am.
1: We're less than a month away from elections. Do you feel like your community is represented in politics in Israel?
0: I'm trying to hold my love. (laughs) I often ask myself, what is it? I mean, the fact that politicians are just ignoring me and people like me. Is it the fact that we are only one and a half, two percent of the population? Is that it? It's only a numbers game. I guess I would rather not answer that question. The day before the last big protest after the murder of Yuda Biadga, I was at home with my husband and we watched the news. It's not something that we usually do. But we did it because it was the launch campaign of Benny Gantz. You know, the biggest rival for Bibi Netanyahu. Everyone were tuned, you know. We wanted to, to hear what he had to say. And, I, and I'm listening to his speech. And I'm trying, you know, to locate the the little things that might talk to me. And he's getting to a point where he's making, you know... This list of all the burning major issues in our country today, okay? And we're talking about Tuesday night, before Wednesday, before the big protest. And he hadn't said a thing. He didn't say anything. I was waiting for it. So we have the elections coming in. And I am a vote, you know. And I'm sitting at home and I'm listening to his speech and he is not saying anything to me. He's not talking to me. He's not thinking about me. Nothing. How can it be that racism and police brutality, which affects every citizen here in Israel, is not a major issue? How is the fact that even though we are less than two percent of this population over 50 percent of ethiopian families live in poverty how come this is not a major issue you know there's also there's double standards with left liberals here a few a few months ago i read in the paper about an incident where a left-wing activist in the West Bank. He is fighting against occupation. He is fighting for Palestinians. But when soldiers are coming over there, okay, and one of them happens to be black, happens to be Ethiopian, you know what was his response? Slurring and words and being racist towards the only black soldier over there. So Merit is not going to get my voice. And Benny Gantz also know. Netanyahu, needless to say, I seriously don't know what my options here.
1: Do you see any hope in any of the Ethiopian candidates in the upcoming elections?
0: No, I do not. In general, I do not believe in the system that we have right now we talked about trust earlier today when i look at my government and the politicians and the so-called representatives that i have i do not believe in them i do not believe in the system i don't think that a change can come from within the system i think that most of the ethiopian representatives are being used as puppets you know, you have Avram Neguse, the Ethiopian uh, member of the Knesset. He is in the in the major party, in the Likud, the ruling one. He is literally blocking us from getting any change. He is doing everything in his power to only maintain his own power. This is the kind of people that Bibi Netanyahu wants close to him. This is the kind of people that other parties and other members uh, of the Knesset are looking for when they want to say, oh, wait, look, we have an Ethiopian in our party, okay? They don't want someone to challenge them.
1: I want to respond to what you just said, just because people will often mention the fact that in 2016, following the big protests of 2015, the government... Actually responded by adopting a plan to integrate the Ethiopian community and Port wait, million- wait
0: wait wait wait, I want to stop you right there. okay We do not need people or the government to integrate us. We are the Israeli society. All we want is to be treated as Israeli citizens. okay My parents live here for over 30 years. They don't need to be integrated. I don't. My sister and my brothers don't. What needs to change is the stigma and the stereotype.
1: But meanwhile, the Israeli government is spending money to help support the Ethiopian community.
0: This thing about the government making all kinds of programs and, you know, saying we will give them this and that million shekels for, I don't know, all kinds of things Most people don't know that the state creates also this major tube in the form of bureaucrats. What happens is that these people absorb the money, the tube absorbs the money, and most of the money doesn't get to its destination. The second thing is the fact that all these programs and all this money is a double-edged sword. It's being used as a way also to maintain our low social status. The the way that they build these programs basically allows people to stay in a place where they need those programs, they need this money, they need all those benefits.
1: To basically keep you dependent on government assistance.
0: Exactly. So when people say, you know, they give you money and they give you this and they give you that, we're saying we don't want it. We don't want it. All we want is a fair opportunity, an equal one, to better ourselves.
1: The government also recently poured millions of shekels into police cultural sensitivity training.
0: Yes, and this is also a great example for how you do things wrong, (laughs) okay? Because what is cultural sensitivity, okay? Why the solution for the fact that our police department is acting as a corrupt organization, is to train them to be sensitive to the culture. Okay, first of all, you assume that we have this kind of special culture that we need to be able to uh, talk it through. We need to create a new language. No, we don't need it. Okay, I don't need you to be sensitive to my culture. That's not what I want. I want you to address racial profiling this is what i want you to do you need to train your officers to understand that what they are doing is basically wrong they need to be able to take responsibility over what is happening and they are not doing it you have the chief of police saying that it's natural to suspect black people and natural to suspect immigrants they need to train themselves to take off those glasses those racist glasses you need to do your job you need to be able to look at me as a regular citizen okay the training should be about how to not pull your weapon just because you can you need to to ask yourself questions about why are you so afraid
1: over the past few years we've seen the struggle of african asylum seekers reach a fever pitch uh, against their persecution and their jailing and the attempts to deport them. Has that struggle affected the Ethiopian struggle?
0: Um, Yes, of course. In my opinion, it affected the Ethiopians that live here in general. You know, most people don't know about the issue that we have with our identity. Ethiopian Jews that live here in Israel have this weird spectrum of identity, okay? We are Jewish. We are Israeli. So those two components make us part of the majority. But we are also black. And we are also from Ethiopian origin. And those two components make us a part of the minority group. And those two ends are very hard to balance. You know, when asylum seekers from Sudan and later on from Eritrea came here, I think that it sparked all kinds of conflicts and issues that originated from the identity issues. Because most of the time, we do not belong. And then the refugees came over. The asylum seekers came over. And we had to choose a side, basically. This is what the Israeli society always asks from us. Choose a side. And when you live in a place that rejects you every day, sometimes you find yourself tangled with attempts to get approval, many of young Ethiopians live in some kind of a, I call it a twilight zone. You don't know exactly what you are, and you are yearning for a sense of home, a sense of being belonged to some place. You want that approval. You know, when you talk to young Ethiopians, most of them will say, I I served in the army and I did this and that, you know, listing all the things that they did that should give them approval. But when you live in a democratic state, it's not supposed to be the issue. The fact that you are a citizen, this is what's supposed to give you your rights and your equal opportunity. I think that the things that I just mentioned makes it sometimes harder for Israeli Ethiopians to see the big picture and to understand that the way that Israeli society and the way that the Israeli state is treating those asylum seekers comes from the same mechanism that makes them treat us that way. To me, it was a struggle and a process to understand it. But now I see. I see that what makes them person non grata is the fact that they are black. And when I walk in South Tel Aviv, when the opposers of the asylum seekers look at me, they don't know who I am. They don't ask, uh, I'm sorry, are you Ethiopian, Israeli? were you born here? No, they see my skin color and they will react to that. And here is where the Israeli society is being very manipulative, okay? Because when we stand beside those asylum seekers and we back them up and we say, you are being racist towards them. They should get asylum in here. They are refugees and they need our help You know what kind of responses I will get? You are Jewish. What are you doing alongside with them? Why are you supporting them? You should be on our side. And the question that I have in my head is, oh, now you want me to be on your side. Where were you when I was protesting in 2015? Where were you when Yuda Biadga was murdered? Where were you when Yosef Salamsa was murdered, allegedly, by cops? Where were you when I was being wronged at the university where I was studying? Where were you when people called me names when I was growing up in Kirat Gat? Where were you?
1: Mazal Bissauer, thank you so much for speaking to us today.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Last week, we spoke with member of Knesset, Tuma Sliman, about how the Israeli Elections Committee disqualified an entire Palestinian party from running in the upcoming Israeli elections. Noam Shehzaf spoke with us about how worrying it is that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu ushered Khanists into the next Knesset, and even his government. This week, Israel's Supreme Court reversed the Election Committee decision to disqualify the left-wing and Arab candidates, which was expected, but also did something very unusual. It disqualified the candidacy of the most prominent Kahanist candidate, Michel Benari. Here to speak with me about what that could mean is 972 Magazine Editor-in-Chief, Michael Schaefer Omerman. Hey, Michael. Hi, Ido. So, tell us a little bit about what the court decided and who Michel Benari is.
3: So, first of all, the court decided, in an eight-to-one decision, to reverse the Israeli Elections Committee decision to disqualify the candidacy of. Ofer Kasif, a Jewish member of the Hadash party, and the entire Balad party, which uh, the political mechanism, the, the Elections Committee, um, disqualified. And separately, and this is perhaps more interestingly and way less expected, they completely, not in relation to a decision of the Israeli Elections Committee, but in response to a petition from the left-wing Merits Party, disqualified the candidacy of Michael Benari, a follower of... Uh, Kahanism, of Mayor Kahane, and this was in accordance with the recommendation of the Israeli Attorney General. What does the disqualification of Mikhail Ben-Ari actually mean? So the court justified the decision based on one of several uh, reasons in Israeli law that one can be disqualified from running in Israeli elections, and in this case it was incitement to racism. You know, Also, the other, the other possibilities of a reason somebody can be disqualified from running are negating the existence of the State of Israel and supporting the armed struggle against it, etc. What they did here is they disqualified one candidate. They didn't disqualify a whole party, which means that there are other uh, Kahanists who are going to be most likely, if this party passes the threshold and gets enough votes, going into the next Knesset. There's one of them, his name is Itamar ben gvir He's a prominent lawyer. Um, who represents Jewish terror suspects. Um, Another one is Baruch Marzel, uh, like Kahane, an American Israeli, lives in Hebron, and was considered Kahane's right-hand man until he was assassinated, and in the years following actually ran the Kach organization until it was declared illegal and declared a terrorist organization by the United States, and subsequently by Israel as well. Now, it's just important to, to note here for a second that these people are going to be in the Knesset just because Micha ben Uri, who maybe was saying these things most loudly, most explicitly, um, who was, you know, in the, in the words of the Israeli law, inciting racism against Arabs, against Palestinians, those ideas are still alive and they're still entering the Knesset and quite possibly the government. So what would it look like for a Kahanist party to enter the next Knesset? So first of all, there, there's two things here. One is that the the right wing and the, the far right, they're already reacting to this decision as an excuse to, to attack the court as a left-wing politicized body, which is crazy considering that the court is the body that has effectively found ways to occupy the Palestinian territories and en- enable racist laws for decades. But you know uh, for instance justice minister ayala Shekhed, in response to the decision already announced a list of judicial reforms that she'd like to make uh, which range from changing the way that judges are nominated from a semi-professional committee today to making it a purely political uh, process to effectively neutering the Israeli Supreme Court by giving the Knesset a veto over its decisions For instance, you know, if the Supreme Court declares a law to be unconstitutional, the Knesset would then be able to come back and say, you know what, we want it anyway. Secondly, the past 10 years, and you can look at it a little bit longer, but really in the past 10 years, we keep saying that the new government is the most right-wing Israeli government in history. And, And there's some truth to that. And a large part of it is because of the partners that Netanyahu has relied on to build his coalitions, to form his governments. And the more radical right-wing people he brings into that into that government, the more concessions he has to make to their agenda in order to form a coalition agreement, and therefore the sort of guiding principles that that lead their legislative agenda. Um, in this case, you know, I think we can be really worried. Uh, these are people who advocate some form of ethnic cleansing, um, Jewish supremacy, and unabashedly. You know, there's no there's no liberalism to qualify it the way that a lot of the right-wing Zionism. Uh, does. Here, it's just a racist, supremacist agenda and ideas and ideology that, if given power, if given the means and the opportunity, would lead to horrible, horrible war crimes. I mean, they they advocate, they want to, one of the positions they wanted to put in government is a minister of emigration with an E, in other words, encouraging Palestinians to leave. Uh, Now, they speak nicely about it now, when they have to go in front of judges and defend it. But you know, if those restrictions were taken off, these are people who see, without any qualification, again, the importance of Israel being a Jewish state far, far, far higher than the importance of it being a democratic state. And, and they want to do something about that. Thank you, Michael, for being with us here today. Thank you, Ido. I'm Michael Schaefer-Omerman, and this episode was produced by Henriette Shakar and Ido Conrad. If you want to hear more about the recent political developments leading up to the Israeli elections, I highly recommend listening to our previous episode, which you can find in the 972 podcast feed. If you want to learn more about the struggle of Ethiopian Israelis, you can read Ido Conrad's report, To be Ethiopian in Israel is to be constantly struggling for something. Please subscribe to the 972 podcast in iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, Please leave a review so others can find it as well.